but reading from the King James, First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16. It says, Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing in everything. Somebody said everything. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Some of us that have been around a while know that verse is a song. It's a whole lot easier to sing than to do. Verse 19 says, Quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Or we might understand that to mean test or examine all things, keep the good stuff, get rid of the junk. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. Wonderful liberty and excitement we feel in your house today. Lord, the joy that's amongst us, that souls being saved, Lord, may it continue, may it increase, Lord, may it be beyond our imagination, Lord God. Father, we pray that as we open your word together, that you'd open our hearts and our minds, that you would anoint me as your servant to do my best to bring clarity to what you've laid upon my heart, and to minister to us today in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. The Word of God, the Bible, is a book like no other book. I think we understand that. It's given by us to God, sorry, by God, given to us by God. I'm a good start already. Given to us by God to be understood, but never to be exhausted. Now, what I mean by that is God wants to speak to us through His Word. He wants us to understand Him and His Word. But you or I will never reach a place that no matter how much we study or how much we apply ourselves or how many revelations we have, we will never reach a point where we close the book and say, I've got it. I understand it all. There's nothing left to learn. There's nothing left to see. I'm fascinated by the the idea of when we go to be with the Lord, what understanding He might give us. I, I don't know if we'll be reading our Bibles in heaven i'm guessing maybe not because we'll be with the lord but how will that the understanding god may give us is something to look forward to and we'll have an awful long time to discuss it when we're there amen and there are some things that i can teach as a pastor that i feel like i have a reasonable grasp of uh, and that i don't believe that there may be too many missing pieces of but then there are other things in the scripture where I am very, very conscious of the fact that my understanding is like dipping a cup in an ocean. And uh, I may have this little bit that I can look at, but there's a whole lot more to that. And so with that as my disclaimer this morning, what I'm going to minister about is a bit, bit more like the cup in the ocean than the other option. So although I do believe God wants to speak to us, I believe He wants to help us to understand something, I'm also aware that it is an area that is beyond my complete comprehension. And so for the focal point of this morning's message, verse 23 of our text says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly or completely. It's not holy as in H-O-L-Y, but it's holy as in all of us. And I pray, God, your whole spirit 
and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica about God sanctifying them, or sanctification is to be separated unto God, committed, consecrated, dedicated unto Him, and by being separated unto Him, there are things that that removes from us. Paul is writing about that happening in a fashion that is complete or whole, and that as a part of that, we would be preserved blameless or faultless unto the coming of the Lord. In emphasizing the wholeness or completeness that Paul is writing about, he lists what we often think of as the three components, if you like, for want of a better word, of mankind. Spirit, soul, and body. Thessalonica, to give you a little bit of context, is in the country of Greece. And the ancient Greeks were well known for their philosophers, intellectuals, people of high education who spent much time considering many different ideas and concepts that still have influence today. You'll know names, possibly some of you, like Plato and Socrates. Even Pythagoras was something of a philosopher. Those of you that know his name maybe remember it from trigonometry at high school when it was all about triangles. If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask Google later on and it'll explain that to you. But they worshipped many false gods, and as a product of that, These philosophers had a lot of different ideas about God, about heaven, about life, about the afterlife, about what makes up the human existence. And they came up with many different points of view, many of which were the product of their own minds and didn't have the endorsement of God himself. And without deviating this morning, if you studied the first two or three centuries of church history, you'll find that some of that philosophical thinking that got woven into some of the church produced some of the errors that still affect many churches today. That's not what I'm talking about this morning, but that's just to give you a little bit of background. This is the environment that the church was in when Paul was writing to them. They're in this kind of an atmosphere. And so when Paul wrote this verse, his desire under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost was not to contribute to a philosophical discussion. He wasn't saying, well, add my opinion to Plato's and Socrates and we'll see if we can come up with what we think is the wisest thing going on. But it was to declare that as the church, that as born-again believers, if we would walk with God, that our lives and live our lives according to His Word, including the things that we read in our text, things like rejoicing, praying, being having thanksgiving, not quenching the spirit, abstaining from evil. If we would do those things, then the Lord would impact every area of our lives and all that we are. God wants to be involved in every single facet of your life. There is a false belief, the name of which escapes me at the moment, that separates the natural world from the spiritual to the point that they believe that what happens in the natural has no impact on the spiritual. That's not biblical. But every part of our lives, spirit, soul, and body, has the attention of God upon it. Amen. And there are things in the Scriptures that we sometimes pull apart or take the pieces of apart so that we can look at them and understand them But the reality is they're not actually separate. They're actually a whole. 
To give you an idea, a simple example of that, when we, we discuss the biblical doctrines of repentance or baptism in Jesus' name or receiving the infilling of the Holy Ghost, we study those things almost as individual uh, doctrines, which they are. And we do so to try to understand them and how they fit and how they apply. But the reality of them is that the bottom line is that there is one new birth that we must be born again. Although we can study components, it's only one new birth. It's not one piece here and one piece there. There is one new birth. And while I may look at repentance and, and I think it's a good thing to study all these things to understand, there's only one new spiritual life. And you either have it or you don't. Amen. In much the same way, there are components of natural birth from conception through to delivery that can be studied separately in medical science. But there's still only one life. It does not matter how much you look at all the different developmental stages of a child, there's only one life. And you can't remove any of those components and still call it a complete life. And unfortunately, the world tries to separate the components of human development to determine that there is a point where termination is justified or abortion. But the reality is life is whole. It is complete from conception to delivery. Amen. Amen. So back to our text. Spirit, soul, and body. Spirit, soul, and body. We are made up of those three components. I believe, and again, my understanding is that cup in the ocean, but I believe that they are fused together at a cellular level or in every cell of our body. I, and if you have a different point of view, that's okay. It's not something I'm willing to die in a ditch over. But, but there, there, is, there was a, a school of thinking, and there still is, that our physical bodies are separate in a, in a complete way from that which is spiritual. But there's been a lot of research, and again, this is not from Scripture. This is from medical research. Plants can impact the personality of the receiver of that donated organ. Now, if it's just a lump of gristle and muscle, then that shouldn't happen. But God in His creative majesty fuses us completely together at the very cellular level of our existence. Amen. Amen. To demonstrate exactly how close the, at least the spirit and the soul are, and I believe the body as well. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Daniel, if you'd throw that one up on the wall. Some of you can quote this. It says, For the word of God is quick. That means alive. It doesn't mean fast. It means alive. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is the discerner, or we might say the understander or interpreter of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so in describing the living power of the Word of God, the writer of the Hebrews gives three examples of things that for us are very hard to naturally separate. Joint and marrow, we might better understand that as bone and marrow. We know they're both there, but trying to actually draw a line between the two is challenging. The soul and spirit and thought and intent. Those are things that we can consider and distinguish, but to separate is very, very difficult. But the Word of God is so powerful and so alive that it affects us at that level of detail. 
Amen. So when we consider spirit, soul, and body, we recognize that although these things can be distinguished in terms of some understanding, they are very much part of one whole together. Amen. And this is, again, not going to be exhaustive, but considering what the spirit is, our spirit, here's one of the challenges in understanding spirit and soul. Sometimes in the New Testament, the scripture kind of uses each word to talk about the same thing which makes it a little bit tricky for simple folks like me. But the spirit in us, when we talk about the human existence, is our life force. It's the spark of life that's within us. And when we die, we often say the spirit has left the body. Scripture tells us in the end of Mark, when Jesus was crucified, that Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost or the spirit, Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. He gave up the ghost. The spirit left his body and the physical body died that's how closely fused together those things are they don't exist without each other amen it is our spirit that god deals with it is at that level of our spirit that god tries to access us amen i know that's not a complete statement i understand that for you theologians but just let me keep it simple this morning our soul although it's very closely connected with our spirit can be distinguished as the, the seat or the place of our emotions, our intellect, our nature, our personality. What makes you, you? That's the soul. What makes you who you are? Our body, although sometimes we think that's the more simple one to understand, is your physical structure with all of the systems that operate within it. But in our text in First Thessalonians, when it speaks of our bodies being preserved blameless... faultless it's more than simply the physical matter that we're made of it also includes the actions of that body or what we do with it the lord doesn't make your bicep holy and sanctified or your right leg but it's talking about that physical action and demonstration that's what's got to be made holy amen bless the lord so when god made man getting into brother frost's favorite book the book of genesis when god made man he made him perfect genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 genesis 2 and 7 says and the lord god formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul everybody say a living soul only the body and the soul are mentioned here there's no mention of spirit in a separate sense but i i'm fairly confident the that this verse when it talks about living souls incorporating both of those ideas of spirit and soul together so adam was made with a body with a personality an intellect a nature and the spirit that was in adam was more than just the spark of life it also included the spirit of god himself when Adam became a living soul, he was a hum- human being that was completely in submission to the Spirit of God. There was no gaps. There was no sin. There was no darkness. And God's Spirit was in Adam in that creation. Amen. Or at least that's my understanding this morning. Again, I'm a cup in an ocean. When Adam and Eve sinned and God confronted them, they chose to try and justify their actions by blaming someone or something else 
And we all know that humanity's been doing that ever since. One of the most common phrases expressed in every nation on the planet is, it's not my fault. It's because of somebody else. And we've been saying that since the Garden of Eden. God's response to their sin and their... I'll go out on a limb and say the fact that they wouldn't repent was to separate himself from them. Now, the spark of physical life was still in Adam and Eve. They didn't drop dead on the spot. So that spark of physical life that's in our spirit was still there. But that which was holy and which was of God himself that would not live with sin, God withdrew that. I can't give you chapter and verse for all of this. I'm probably going to apologize far too much. I'll stop now. God withdrew that of himself which would not co-inhabit with sin in humanity. Amen. Their choice introduced another influence into their lives. And that influence brought sin and corruption to their nature and their intellect, to their soul which they then demonstrated in their body. We go one generation and we've got murder. One generation from sinless man and woman, we've got a murderer. So something has changed at the essence of mankind and it is demonstrated in how he behaves. Amen. There's not a test on this later, so don't get nervous. If there was, I'd fail the test. Amen. So when we consider spirit, soul, and body, we need to understand that it is the soul that is in charge. Your soul is where your decisions are made. What I want, what I'm going to do, who I'm going to be. That's the control center. That's where the authority is. That's where those decisions are made, and that's where what our body does is decided. You decide, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm not going to to get up and walk this morning because it's cold and windy. I'm going to stay in bed and sleep. That's your your soul. Who you are is making that decision. I'm glad this morning that some of you used your souls to come to church instead of staying home because it was cold and wet and windy. Amen. Very glad for that. Our soul is powerfully influenced by the senses of our body. Touch, smell, taste, sight, and hearing. Let me give you a very simple example of that. If you walk past a bakery or a restaurant, cold morning, and what's the pastor doing talking about bakeries? You will see that place. It's quite possible that you will smell it. If you're close enough, you might even hear it. That steak hitting the hot grill. And so you've heard it smelt it and seen it and then those senses are yelling at your soul to decide whether or not you're also going to touch and taste it we are very affected at the level of our nature by our natural senses and in fact most temptation i'm not going to say all but a large percentage of temptation is a product of what our senses are experiencing and interacting with that's why the bible talks about the lust of the eyes there's things that we are seeing We are drawn to things naturally. Amen. Now, when we are lost, before we are saved, God is reaching for us through that spirit-soul access. His spirit 
is drawing. That's what the Bible says. Jesus said, no man comes unto the Father, but by me, said, so no man comes unto me except the Father draws him. There's a drawing that takes place. It's not happening physically. The Lord isn't putting a rope around your leg or your hand and trying to pull you in. He's working at the level of your spirit and soul. He's working through that life spark, trying to get to who you are and get you to give him your attention. That's what happens. That's why it happens through the witness of another person. It happens through the word of God. It happens through the circumstances of our life. God is trying to get our attention. I had some wonderful fellowship at the picnic yesterday and a part of that was talking about how God sets things up to reach for us that we don't have a clue what he's doing until we look back down the pathway of our life and go, I thought all of that was circumstance and chance, but God's putting pieces on the chessboard so that when you happen to be right there, he's like, here I am, trying to get our attention. Amen. Amen. And so when we choose, I was nearly going to apologize again, I won't do that. We choose to respond to Jesus by faith, and we're born again of water and spirit, Now, we don't only have the spark of human life in us, but we also have the Spirit of God in us. That's a big change. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And we rejoice at the new life that Jesus gives us. However... When you were born again, when you woke up the next day, for example, let's say to make it easy, you repented, got baptized, got the Holy Ghost the same day. We've got some folks here that that's happened for. When you woke up the next day, there were still plenty of things that hadn't changed. Amen. Still plenty of things. Sometimes as part of people becoming saved, God will heal diseases and sicknesses in their bodies. Sometimes he doesn't. I'll give you an example. If you were overweight before you were born again, When you get up in the morning, guess what? You were still overweight. Disappointing, I know, but that's how it is. If you were lousy at mathematics before you got born again, and you got up the next morning, you were still using your fingers and toes and having trouble working out the bills. There are things that do not change. Now, remembering that God sees everything from outside of time, He's looking ahead to that time when the Bible says that these corrupt mortal bodies will put on incorruption and immortality and that our natures will be changed again and restored to their original intent, he sees that as complete. But we're living in the between, between the now and then. I mean, that's where I exist, at least. Anyway, if you've already got that covered, more power to you. Amen. But I'm in the between the now and then, very much so. Amen. Amen. And if you have the Holy Ghost... The Spirit of God that is in you is perfect right now, in the present, in the present. But the battle is for your soul. The battle is for your soul. We are victorious. We sang a song about that this morning. We are victorious when we trust and obey what the Lord says to us and about us more than the things that our soul believed before we knew God. I'm going to say that again. We are victorious when we trust and obey what God says to us and about us. When we trust that more than the things our soul believed before we knew the Lord. That's the battle. That's the battle there. 
Here's an interesting thought for you. None of you have ever looked at your own faces. Some of you said, well, I did this morning. No, you did. You looked in the mirror. You looked at a reflection. Try and look at your own face. Go on, everybody, try and look at your own face. Well, get this on video, Brother Frost. It'd be hilarious. We cannot look directly at our own faces. And so we look in a mirror and we trust the image that we see. We've learned to trust that reflection. Now, if you've ever been to the show or one of these fun parks where they've got the crazy mirrors, you know that reflection can get distorted. You know, they make you taller or fatter or skinnier, and we go to the skinny mirror and try to take it with us, but it's, it's, it's stuck there. But we have learned to trust that reflection. When you brushed your hair this morning and washed your face, you weren't wondering, is that really me? You might have been hoping it wasn't. But you've been looking at that mirror since you were born and you trust the image that you see. Now that's a simple example, but before we are born again, we have experiences in our lives, particularly experiences that are repeated, that we learn to trust, whether they are true or not. And some, we look into an image whether it's something that we've put there or somebody else puts there, when it's put there enough, we will develop a trust and a belief in that image. Amen. And the battle for the choices we make is at the level of our soul. James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, please, Daniel. James 1, 22 says, But be you doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word, and not a doer of the word, he is like unto a man beholding or looking at his natural face in a glass or in a mirror. For he beholds himself, and goes his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looks into the perfect or complete law of liberty, and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, or not forgetting the things that God's word had said, but a doer of those works, or of that work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Now, what would be the point of me getting up this morning, looking in my bathroom mirror, and doing nothing about it? How would I look? I can give you an idea. I tend to sleep on the left side of my head, so it'd all be stuck up here bit like you know wave rock on the side of my head probably sleep in my eyes and you know creases from the pillow slip maybe a bit of drool i don't know so if i got up and looked in the mirror and thought oh you're a mess oh well i went to church people might say are you okay pastor did you have a rough night but because i look in the mirror and i see you need some work I wash my face, I have a shower, I shave, I brush my teeth, I, I comb my hair because I've seen an image that needs to be adjusted. And so the principle is when we look into the Word of God, it will speak to us of what God... There's a few things God's Word will speak to us about. It will speak to us about what He wants to change, but it will also speak to us about how He feels about us and how He sees us. And we make a choice, do I believe 
what I'm seeing in the reflection of the inspired Word of God, or do I go back to a mirror that I've looked at for 10, 20, 30, 40 years that somebody else put in front of my face? That somebody else is not anonymous. His name is Satan. It might have been people. It might have been your family or somebody, but it comes from somewhere else. We make a choice which mirror that we look into. Amen. And so when our soul, when our control center, where the decisions are made, chooses, and I don't mean to be unkind, but the doctrine of predestination and Calvinism that we have no choice is ungodly and wicked. God has put in us the ability to choose Him. That's why we were made, so that we could choose Him. Amen. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I can explain that to you later. But when we choose to look into the mirror of God's Word and His Spirit, we'll see a reflection that says, this is what I think about you. Now, the reflection you've lived with before you knew Jesus might be that nobody loves you, that nobody cares about you, that in fact you are unlovable. Then you look in the mirror of God's Word and He says, I loved you before you were even born. And He said, I love you enough that I gave my life to demonstrate that love for you. And one of the reasons that some people struggle responding to the love of God is because the old mirror has been in their life for so long they have trouble believing the new mirror because they're not the same reflection. And you have to decide which mirror am I looking in. Amen. Bless the Lord. We have to look into that mirror. When when God's Word and His Spirit shows you something that needs to change, it is never to condemn you. It is always for your benefit. It is always to make you more into that reflection that He wants you to be. Amen. Bless the Lord. So when we can come to understand that the natural mirror that our five senses and our corrupt nature present to us is actually a flawed image and that the true image is that which God has presented us with, The end of that passage in James says that we can be blessed in our deed. It says the man that does this shall be blessed in his deed. What does that mean? What does it mean to be blessed in our deeds? 2 Corinthians 3 and 18 says, But we all, with an open face, it's talking about the fact that we're in the New Testament, we have direct access to God, with an open face beholding as in a mirror or a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image, the one we're looking at, from glory to glory, step by step, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So when at the level of my soul, at the level of what do I want, you see, you've got to want Jesus more than you want the other stuff. When with my soul, I choose by faith to believe what God says, it then will be demonstrated in my actions or what I do in my deeds. I'll be blessed. But you see, we sometimes we think of a blessing. We're, we're, we're often pretty shallow. When we think blessing, we think gift. You know, bless somebody with a new car. Bless somebody with a hundred bucks. And everybody said, thank you, Jesus. But the blessing here, the blessing is the change that comes in your deeds. The blessing is that when I look in that mirror and I say, I'm going to believe what Jesus says, 
instead of what that old mirror says, the blessing is the change that will come about in my life. That's why in Hebrews when it says that he that cometh to God must first believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. What's the reward? It's the same thing. If you seek him, you'll find him. That's the reward. It's the change that he can bring about in our lives. And I know that there are people sitting here this morning that don't think they can change. That think that the things in their lives are too powerful a grip we all have felt like that and continue to from time to time that's the old mirror turn your back on it look into the new mirror see a new reflection see a new image that god wants to say all right yeah you love you messed up your life but if you look at what i want you to be you'll be blessing your deeds i'll transform your life amen Amen. So with our cup in the ocean this morning, which mirror does your soul trust? Because that's what it comes down to. Which one do you trust? You know when you go to the, the funny mirrors, you know it's not real. You don't even think that it's real. If I go and look in that one of those mirrors and it makes me eight foot tall and 50 pounds, I know that's not a real reflection. There's no, there's no I'm not worried, wow, do I really look like that? because I know what the normal mirror tells me. I have to choose which mirror I'm going to trust. But can you imagine, this might seem a little bit humorous, but if you had one of those wacky mirrors in your house and that was all you'd ever had. Imagine if you got some dodgy guy to build your house and build your bathrooms. He bought one of those curved mirrors at a you know, second-hand store and saved a few dollars and put that in your bathroom. And you looked at that every day and saw yourself as three foot tall. Walked out of your house every morning, believing that you were three foot tall. Everybody else is looking at you going, you're at least six two. And you're going, no, nope, I'm three foot tall. Because you've seen an image that you've come to trust in. Now, that's humorous, but people do that spiritually. There is a reflection that some of you have looked at long enough that you are convinced that you are spiritually three foot tall. When the Lord's saying, you're up here. And if that, if that happened in your bathroom and you looked at that for years, how long do you think it would take somebody to convince you, bro, there's something wrong with your mirror? You'd take a little while, but then eventually you'd say, actually, you know, I think they might be right. That's the hope that Jesus brings. Amen. Does our natural environment and experience dictate to God? Or does the Word and the Spirit of God dictate to the environment? That's the question. If out there is telling me who I am, then I'm believing that and saying, I'm sorry, God, but they're right. But if God is telling me who I am, then I can say to the world, you might think that's who I am, but you are so wrong, it's not funny. I'm a child of God. Amen. One, verse, one passage of Scripture in closing. Romans chapter 6, and verse 16 through to 23. Apostle Paul said, Romans 6 and 16, Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Presenting two choices. Whoever you chose to serve, you're their servant. 
want you to try and read this with me a little bit. But when we see the word serve and the choices, imagine it's the two mirrors. Verse 17, But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Let's break that down and say you used to believe that image, but with faith and obedience from your heart, you've believed the doctrine that was delivered to you through the mirror of the Word of God. Amen. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, for as you have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, he's saying that's the past, that's the old reflection. Now he's saying even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. Spirit, soul, body, holy, ready for the return of the Lord. Amen. For, for when you were servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you then in those things of which you were then ashamed? He said, what was worth hanging on to in that life? What was the product of that life? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin, walking away from that old mirror and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. And then verse 23, some of you know off by heart, for the wages of sin is death. You keep looking in that mirror. You'll die. You will never be filled with the Spirit of God before you're saved if you continue to look in that mirror. And that life spark will eventually go out. But the gift of God, and I turn away and I look into the perfect law of liberty. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand together this morning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Why don't we just lift our hands for a moment and worship Him?